0: everyone. I'm Ivan Baxter, and welcome to the last episode of Season 3 of The Taproot.
1: Or maybe not
0: the last episode. More about that later.
1: And I'm Liz Haswell. Today's guest is Yoseline Benitez-Alfonso, a faculty member at the University of Leeds in the U.K., Yoseline studies the communication channels between plant cells, called plasmodesmata, and we'll talk about her research into the ways in which these channels are modulated by stress and by development. We'll also discuss how she recently opened a different kind of communication channel, this time with a potential competitor, turning this potential competitor into a collaborator.
0: Be sure to listen all the way to the end as we are asking for your input for a final episode of Season 3. And with that, let's get on to the discussion.
1: Okay, so today's guest is Yoseline Benitez Alfonso. She's a group leader and lecturer at the University of Leeds in the UK. Originally from Cuba, she did her graduate work at the Universidad de Córdoba, Spain, and two postdocs, one at Cold Spring Harbor and another at the John Anna Center. She started her independent position at University of Leeds in 2013.
0: So Yoseline, welcome to the Taproot.
1: Thank
2: you, and thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to actually be part of the taproot community.
0: <laughs> so, today's paper is Gaudioso Pedroja et al., and it's callous regulated symplastic communication coordinates symbiotic root nodule development. And that is in Current Biology last year, 2018. Joseline, do you want to give us a quick summary of the paper?
2: Yes, it would be a pleasure. As you know, nodulation is, um, occurs in response to symbiotic bacteria in legumes, uh, specifically to nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So we look how synplastic communication, intercellular communication through channels that connect cells named plasmodesmata, basically organize or coordinate the response to the roots to the symbiotic bacteria and how this end up into producing a new nodule. So, our findings were actually surprising because we didn't actually saw that it would be so striking, but what we found was that altering symplastic communication in the positive manner, so improving communication between cells through this pathway, really uh, increased the number of nodules that are formed in legumes root in, in in response to this. Bacteria. At the same time, or basically in parallel, another group in France we end up collaborating. We're looking at the effect of closing in plastic communication, basically closing the channel to this transport of signaling. And what they found was the opposite, basically when they closed the channel, what they found is that nodulation was impaired and colonization of the nodules specifically by the bacteria was impaired. And these come up to be together. We put our heads together and and we created uh, this paper where we prove by both sides that basically simplastic communication is necessary and required for the response of legume roots to symbiotic bacteria.
1: It's such a cool story. I've always had a fascination for Plasma Desmata. <laughs> and they actually seem like, it seems like a kind of an organelle in a way.
2: It is totally an organelle and one of the yeah. most complex.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> but we don't know anything about them. Why are they so hard to study compared to what we know about any other organelle in the plant? Cell?
2: What I find more intriguing about plasma, desmeta, eh, or plasma Desmata, as you like to say. There's two ways everyone. to say it, isn't there? <laughs> I say it with my Spanish accent and I hope that everyone likes it. What is intriguing about Plasma Desmata is that they um, basically communicate or are part of two cells at the same time. So, and they basically are integrated in yeah. these cell wall regions, which are really complex, as you very well know this. <laughs> you
1: mm-hmm. know,
2: such a complex mixtures of polysaccharides and polymers that really regulate very rapidly the mechanical properties of these channels that connect these uh, cells. And intriguingly, there is also a plasma membrane region, a near region, and all of them is a connection between two different cells. So, what I think that is really, really intriguing about plasmodesmata is how these um, neighboring cells keep maintaining their own identity and their own behavior, uh, having this connection that allows basically the passage supposedly or presumably by diffusion of a number of molecules. So, what determines that basically one cell is different yeah, from the really? right? So, that actually is what intrigued me more about plasmodesmata and what makes them interesting is that the regulation by the plant, we know very little about, because we know that they do regulate plasmodesmata and the transport through the channels but how they do it and how that is actually linked to all these environmental stresses, to all the developmental needs right. of the plant is something that is really fascinating and I think that what makes it more different from other organelles or structures is that the fact that they belong and are exposed to all these stresses and influence it, so there is no compartmentalization in terms of plastic have a, a basically their own compartment or a nuclei have their own compartment or the mitochondria it is right. just a little bit more exposed to every single signal from the plan or every single molecule that is there
0: is it because it's hard to isolate as well and you can't just spin out a couple plants well on I, I
2: mean the tools <laughs> Yeah, the tools to actually said knowledge about plasmodesmata is quite uh, challenging. Uh, yes, they are difficult <laughs> to isolate because they are embedded in the cell wall and, and part of the membrane region. So, how do you isolate uh, proteins that are uh, specific of plasmodesmata? We have several success stories very recently, but it has been really difficult. Uh, I was very proud of participating in one of the first plasmodesmata proteome while I was in at the In Center, but really, that come up with a lot of contaminations from other cellular structures and this is because basically the nature of plasmodesmata is that they are integrated with all these other cellular structures. Also, mutagenesis is really difficult. Again, at College Spring Harbor, we tried that. That was our first tool to actually study plasmodesmata, was to do basically direct mutagenesis and look for mutants that were affected in symplastic transport. Very, very difficult because as soon as you really disturb this turtle, the plant basically stopped growing. So they are so necessary for development <laughs> that basically there is lethality coming from any mutant that are uh, really strongly Affected plasmodesmata regions. Yeah, fortunately, we went around that. We <laughs> when we identified the plasmodesmata protein, because then we identified that many times where we didn't identify mutants by direct mutagenesis was because they belong to actually a large family of proteins
1: you sort of described the way in which you and another group contributed two different sides to the same story for the paper that you published. You got a nice paper in Current Biology. So we had seen, actually had seen a tweet that you put out about this collaboration where you said, with a bit of trust, your alleged competition can become your friend and an amazing collaborator. (laughs) And that was one of the reasons why we invited you here, because we thought that It was really interesting to think about how the kind of role that competition versus collaboration play in the decisions that people make as they're preparing stories and, and publications. So, walk us through the story of how you went from competing to collaborating, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about some of your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. So basically, this was a, a surprise to us. We started working in this project, as I say, like in 2012, before even I joined it to Leeds. So I was at the Young Center and I was talking to some, some colleagues about results with lateral root, specifically with Giles or Droid, which is uh, one of the people that kind of told me, oh, you know, nodulation is something very similar to lateral root formation. So basically, an organogenesis process. And then it came up the idea, okay, you would be really nice to understand how symplastic transport control and nodulation versus lateral root does it follow the same pathway or different pathway. But I managed to recruit a HD student who was really, really good, uh, Rocio Gaudioso Pedrasa, who is actually the first author of this paper. And she started with me in 2013 at working on, on, on this project. And when she started this project, we were very focused on the symplastic pathway basically we were not looking at the infection and the symbiotic part of the story so we were focused in how the connectivity between cells is established but we got some reporter lines we were very very excited about the fact that we isolated some genes from the medicago that could improve nodule number and we were almost about to publish and in that moment, I, that was in 2016, I just asked Rocio, we need some markers for symbiotic relation, just to prove that basically the nodules that we are obtaining are actually nodules. So Rocio just went through, through the literature and then she found that David Baker, who is in Toulouse, had produced quite a lot of markers. So she just wrote to him and asked, Can I have some marker lines to test if a topic expression of my beta one glucanase And David Baker said, oh, there is, (laughs) wait a minute, there is someone in my institute that is working on the same topic.
1: (laughs) And we were like, what?
2: (laughs) And that was in 2016.
0: What was your first thought when you heard that? Was it scared or was it...
2: uh... Yeah, it was fear, but... (laughs) (laughs) It was fear that for what, you know, everything that I have done basically was already out there. So I was like, uh, you know, looking at the everywhere what happened. And then um, and then uh, we, I say, you know, Rocio, you know, go ahead because you already kind of established the, this, you know, I already told. So let's contact them and, you know, just see what happened. So it happens that they were uh, uh, working on the same uh, topic, uh, but from completely a different angle. Basically, they were looking at uh, callosynthesis, which is the enzymes that basically block plasmodesmata, and how the influence of callosynthesis in basically in the in, in the establishment of the of, of the infection process. And uh, their results were very complementary to the ones that we had, and um, uh, yeah, incredible enough, we just got talking, and at the beginning, there is always this feeling, uh, how much, uh, you know, can I trust you? And uh, it ended up to be a wonderful thing that we did, and thank you to Rocio, basically, who initiated these talks, and and, and, and thank you, of course, to Fernanda, who was the person that actually ended up... Um, being the collaborator, because she was very open to consider our circumstances, uh, Rocio's circumstances, because she was also finishing her PhD and uh, her own circumstances and bring the whole story in time together, basically.
1: Yeah. So in this case, it ended up working out great, right? But... Mm. It's really hard to know when collaborating is going to help you and where it's going to hurt you. So in this paper, you're are you last author or second to last author? I am second last author. <laughs> yeah. So in some places that for somebody who's a young person, that's problematic. Were you worried about the fact that you're like a young faculty member and now you're going to get a publication where you're not last author?
2: At that point, I was... I mean, we, we had an agreement, basically, Fernanda and I, and we said, you know, if Rocio end up to be, because she's my PhD, if she end up to be the first author, then she would be the last author, and vice versa. If the person, the postdoctorate that was working on the project on her side was the first author, then I would be the last author. That point I found I'm not that happy, of course, of, but not because of, of any other thing that is not how... People see me from outside as second last author instead of the last author. But I am very proud that Rocio actually get to be the first author in that publication. So I think that we have been both recognized in these terms. And also because the areas of expertise, they haven't been damaging for me because our area of expertise is are very complementary. They are not the same. So Fernanda is well known in her field for symbiotic interactions and nodulation, where I am known in my little field of symplastic communication and plasma regulation So even when people see that paper, they kind of recognize what are my expertise and what is her expertise and how we come together to create this story.
1: I think that the whole... I mean, I want to talk about specific examples, but I also sort of want to explore the challenge of, of really even thinking about science as a competition at all. We did actually cover some of the authorship issues in an earlier season of the Taproot when we were talking to, who was it, Ivan?
0: Jeff Rosabara.
1: But I think there's a broader question that sort of your story brings up, which is the role that competition plays in science. Like, I think there's kind of this idea generally, like your, your average person would say, competition is drives science. It drives you to yeah. get in and answer questions, and all these examples of people racing to get their data out sooner. But I wonder if that's helpful.
2: I'm not afraid of competition specifically because I think that competition is necessary to keep you a little bit on your toes. I think that your competitor will be actually the first person that will point to there is an issue on your data or these haven't been tested through fully. If you are working in something that is attractive, if you are working a topic that is cutting edge and that is relevant, there is going to be other people working in the same topic. <laughs> this is, the, this is the, the way of being. That what I am not very happy is when instead of using the competition for the good, you know, it's used, you know, in, in the wrongful way, wrong uh, standing of, of researchers.
0: Yeah, I think the bigger problem is that we're incentivizing people to be secretive and be fast because they feel like they will get more credit mm-hmm. if they do it first. Indeed. And I think that's so damaging because obviously if two people are working on it, it's not that you are the special flower who had the only idea that no one else could think of. Multiple people had the idea. So giving the one group credit for getting there six months faster for whatever reasons that right. they did it yeah. is, is just so damaging to the community.
2: Yeah, and I have to say that that's, I mean, I have seen labs that encourage that, even we seen the same lab, where people actually, and I have here hear stories from other labs saying, you know, people just present lab meetings, hiding the names of the genes, so other, <laughs> no other people, or no other person in the same lab work on the same gene, which I think that is ridiculous. It can get that ridiculous.
0: That is <laughs> yes. such damaging culture. And and that, to me, is a toxic culture that you should get out of that lab as fast as possible. If that's where yeah. you're at, you just can't. There's just so much wrong with that. That should be such a red flag. But
2: I, I have to say, I think that there is also a little bit of blame into journals and into grant providers and fellowship providers or funding places. I think that they in certain way encourage this. For example, the recognition of, of a paper when they have two last author or two first authors is never really there. Absolutely. So I, I have received absolutely no message from the journal about being corresponding author of that paper. You know? It has been all mm-hmm. connection with Fernanda. Yeah. You know, fair because Fernanda immediately contacted me and sent me the message. You know, it's fair enough in this case, um, you know, interaction that we have. But that tells me that basically not even the journal recognized me as corresponding author of the paper, you know?
0: Ivan takes a note to contact the people at Journal Management Systems for Plan Direct. (laughs) because some of it's software like that that comes from two places one is the software is just that's the way it's set up but the other one is is that you want to have systems where it's clear when you can go to the next step right so if it's two corresponding authors then do you need both of them to click approve before you can submit the paper
2: I think yes.
0: (laughs) Having done multiple papers where I had co-first authors who were traveling and things like that. And, you know, we would say, oh, you finish off submission. You know, I'm good to go. Those kinds of things. So that
2: is fine. As soon as you have the authorization. But this is not something for the journal to decide. You know, the journal, the first step should be to contact everyone. And if you have the authorization to agree that paper to proceed, because if not, you are not contributing to this paper. You are not recognized as contributor. I mean, of course, we are thinking now in first and last answer, but what to say in the middle, you know, in the middle, everyone gets much up and then you say, oh, you know, there is and no one really actually read the part of individual how to contribution in the end of the paper. Right. And it's not fair. Yeah. Definitely, it's not fair. But that's where competition is actually kind of engaged and really promote. The fact that we are talking about this topic, it comes from there and it comes from fellowships as well, because fellowships are also a way to prize the one person, one researcher that supposedly had that great idea, when this is not true, and we know that this is not true, my research is extremely interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary, and I cannot say that all the ideas that comes into my research are Mm -hmm. all mine, are my ideas after discussion with all my collaborators.
1: Yeah. I think the small steps can be valuable. Yeah. One thing I keep picturing are, you know, these young people worrying about showing a poster that somebody's going to take a picture of. You know, you hear these stories, right? I presented this. And then three months later, somebody's paper came out in Bioarchive, on exactly the same thing as me. Now they discovered it first, even though I know they stole it from my poster or whatever. It seems like small potatoes, but it's all like an attitude. All of that is yeah. real. <laughs> yes, It's real. That's yes. right. It's real. And it affects people's careers. So my attitude is, I think very much like yours, which is let's just put it all out there. But I wonder if there are subtleties to that, that you would maybe counsel a young person or a, or a young PI how they might handle putting their own data out there or protecting their trainees that kind of thing.
0: I think that's really a key point. I wonder did, you know, when you were just to give it a specific example, when you were discussing with Fernanda, did you guys ever consider trying to do two separate papers we back did. to back so that you could, you know, make it clearer what was going on or was it always a question of uh, how do we how do we merge these? Yeah.
2: Overall, at the earliest stages of the time that we connect that we connected, we did discuss and make it two separate stories. But I saw and we agree that it will be so much weaker as two separate stories when, you know, both of the stories were so complementary and so coming to the same final message that we saw that actually it was much more stronger and made much more sense to actually publish it together. And you need to find ways to bring the message together because if not the message gets diluted, there is too many stories about, I don't know, out in transport, you know, if all of them could come together, everyone would be, could <laughs> be kind of more focused in what, what is the final message and what is the, the, sorry, I know that science doesn't progress like that, but when it happens to progress, I think that you do big steps and now smaller steps. That's my opinion anyway. It's not that case shared by everyone.
0: (laughs) I think it's it's actually two things. One is do you trust in general in the community that you're willing to put your stuff out there. And I think while there are certainly stories of people who feel like they got scooped because they put something on a poster and that might have happened to me, I'm not sure. But there are so many more times where I put something out there and somebody came back with something that was so helpful to me. And I think those are so much more likely to happen. And so I think it's the ghost stories of like, oh, I put it out there and I got scooped, which probably most of those are not true. Probably it's more that somebody was already working on it and realized that they had competition and decided to push, but not necessarily that they stole it. And then there's the other question, though, I think is that extra step of I found out that someone else is doing it. Do I actually collaborate with them? Do I try and publish together? Do I try and go beyond what I was willing to put out there publicly and give somebody who I don't know very well my ideas of, of where this is going with the hope that we will build a collaboration?
2: My Again, my philosophy has been always, you know, don't fear competition, because I think that can basically damage yourself as well. So my advice for early careers would be always to put the data out there and trust. <laughs> I trust everyone. I trust I trust good nature, you know, until someone demonstrates the contrary. I trust that the person that is coming to see my poster <laughs> have the good nature to talk to me <laughs> if I am presenting data that is convenient for him or her, and be able to discuss it and be able to find a way to actually validate the data together, present the data in a way that benefits both. At the moment, again, I cannot say that in the future it's not going to happen. I haven't had the bad experience of saying, you know, someone really stole my data and now they are uh, publishing out there with, my, uh, with the things that they saw in the poster. I might. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But that's a lot to ask a trainee to do though.
2: I know that it's difficult. I know that it's difficult. And, and and perhaps for a trainee is 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 it's always useful to consult their their their
1: PI or, or mentor about it. To Ivan's greater point, thinking about what's the balance of the benefit of, of mm. open science in all the ways you want to interpret that word versus the benefits of keeping something to yourself, on balance, open science is always going to win. So I say that, but then you know I think about Jim Watson and how this person with all of these horrible personal mm. traits gets all of this attention and has done for 60 years yeah. because he was the first to get to an idea, even though it was built on the backs of other people's work. And so, for a young person to say, well, open science is uh-huh. always better, well, I bet Rosalind Franklin wouldn't necessarily yeah. agree, uh-huh. agree with that, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: That's a great point, Liz. I mean, because I think that the, you know, Watson shaped this narrative of how the competition pushed them. They got the credit, but we were going to discover the structure of DNA. That was going to happen. <laughs> It may have taken longer, but they happened to be at the right time at the right place. And you can probably say that discovering the structure of DNA two years earlier than they did helped humanity because it started this amazing revolution in science two years earlier. But it doesn't mean that they were like the only ones to do that. So
2: believe me, I am not a Christian or a Catholic or anything, but I think that everyone gets what they deserve. And the fact that you are talking about it right now... Tell me that no one got away with it, you know. <laughs> still, Rosalind Franke gets recognized for their contribution, and still Jim Watson gets fired from College Spring Harbor for their comments.
0: If you were a grad student, Jocelyn is there one or two key things that you think you should be thinking about when thinking about competitors or collaborators that would help a grad student sort of frame that approach?
2: This is part of the reason we are in academia. We are in academia because you know, we want uh, to share our research because one, for the benefits of all, we want to do this. If not, just go to industry. So I, I, I wouldn't never give an advice to a grad student that basically avoid competition. I think that yeah. they shouldn't avoid competition. Yeah. I think that bo- competition should be there and it's going to be beneficial at some point. It's just basically use it healthy. And make it, you know, in a healthy way, in a way that you also look forward to actually listen to what your competitor has to say. Keep yourself open to the possibility that sometimes you need to collaborate to that competitor to actually get to the point of, or to the core of an story. And don't be scared. Because there is a lot of ground to cover in science and, and there is a, a place for all of us.
0: And I think that's a great place to end it. So we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for joining us. Thank if you. people want to reach you to give you feedback on the episode, how can they do that?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I use Twitter. I use my Twitter, Benitez Alfonso Lab. You can find me there, but I also use WordPress. So you can put BenitezAlfonsoWordPress.com. Or send me an email if you look in the online and put Jocelyn Benitez Alfonso, you will find my email. I'm happy always to receive feedback.
0: Awesome. Liz, how can people find you?
1: You can contact me at at ehaswell.
0: And you can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can find the Taproot at at Taproot Podcast. And with that, thank you so much, Yoseline.
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: Okay, so that concludes our six-episode season on Busting Myths. Which brings us to an idea we have for an upcoming show, tentatively titled, Interrogate the Taproot. We'd like to spend some time answering your questions about us, about podcasting, anything you want to know or would like to hear our perspective on.
0: To submit questions, either tweet or DM them to at Podcast or email them to taproot at planta.org. We'll do our best to answer. The Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plante website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell, and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. We get editing help from ASPB Conviron scholar Juniper Kiss, and social media and blog post writing help from ASPB intern Katie Rogers. We are very excited to have Joe Stormer help us with the transcripts for Season 3. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening.